0: Um, but this is, so this is the, the final chapter of the book, New Power for, for Work. Um, and, and if you, you can read the epilogue that he just kind of goes through and you, you get reminded of a lot of the ideas of the book, but uh, we're not going to go through that. But so the work under the work and really the rest under the rest. These are two big ideas that sort of structure the whole chapter. And we'll talk about what those are. Uh, he begins with uh, an interesting... Uh, story about a young doctor working at uh, New York City Hospital and he says she was friends with a doctor who was a few years ahead, ahead of her and was pregnant with her second child and then she asked this question, do you know what I love most about being pregnant? The older doctor said to her one day. I love being pregnant because it's the only time when I feel productive all the time. Even when I'm sleeping, I'm doing something exclamation point it struck the young doctor this is Keller now that her friend uh, based her self-regard so completely on productivity that she seemed relieved to finally uh, find a task she could do incessantly (laughs) she reflected for many of us this is her now being productive and doing becomes an attempt at redemption even if they don't put it that way that's really what they're trying to do and he says that is through our work we try to build our worth, security, and meaning. Right, and throughout the book we've seen what you know, we talk about what happens when you try to do that. Right, um, the bottom will fall out because you're placing your your worth, you know, in, in all those other things. But he introduces this uh, this idea uh, of the work beneath the work here, and it refers to our motivations for working. Right. And uh, the paragraph right after that, he says, "Many people are trying to get a sense of self through productivity and success, but that burns them out. For others, the motivation is to bring a paycheck so they can really enjoy real life, but that makes work into a pointless grind. right You're just doing the work so then you could get the money to do the stuff that it really is all about. And we've seen the problem with that is like how much of your time do you spend at work like most of it so then most of your life, you're just doing this meaningless grind sort of stuff. And he's, he's talked about that. He says, these motivations are what we call the work beneath the work. And they're what makes work so physically and emotionally exhausting in the end. And so this sets up a question that if, you're, if you are going by the study guide, uh, I'm going to loosely be going by it. And this is question two. What difference did Jesus make? what does it mean um, that the apostles, and this is how Keller puts it, had a, both a freedom, Jesus gave them a freedom from their work and a freedom in their work. So if those motivations are bad and we, they can lead to burnout or yeah, striving to find a sense of self and something they can never do that, how, how then does, and maybe someone who read can help us out here, but you can participate if you haven't. How does Jesus, then, what difference does he make in freeing us from our work and in our work? What you're thinking, obviously, it doesn't mean you become a Christian you have to work anymore, right? Um, so that's not what he means, <laughs> right? From our, from our work. But how do you think Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, could free us from, from and in our work? Speaking of this idea of the work beneath the work, that's what he's talking about. How does it free us from that in terms of the false motivations? You guys are right here. It's coming. I knew you were coming here. Nick, it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> you just say hey, you chose to sit there. I missed the Yeah. Well, so he, he goes to the disciples, right? And he's like, obviously Jesus chose them, and they, they still are fishermen, right? Um, uh, he tells them you're going to now be fishers of men. But he, he has a good statement that he says, said on this point. He says, now, now the disciples have an identity and significance untethered to their job or financial status, right? Which is incredibly freeing because if, if you're attaching if you're your significance and identity – to your job, and then you lose your job, or your job doesn't go well. What happens to your identity, right? Like when I, when I was growing up, I remember playing. I was a, played baseball. I was a jock, and I can brag now. I got a letter from the Mariners. I, was gonna, I thought I was going to play for the Mariners and work out. Um, I was too small anyway, but uh, I got a tryout. That was kind of cool. Uh, but for me, and I wasn't a believer my mood and pretty much everything was based on whether i played well that week or not if i didn't i was the worst person to be around i was horrible that's kind of a trivial example but like that that's like what it was my my whole worth really was dependent on how people you know saw me as a, an athlete so that same thing applies to all of our work right uh and so it gives them a, an identity untied to their job or financial s- status. So that's how and and he says um Jesus changed their relationship to their work. Right? He he's the one who gave them that identity has nothing to do with their work and therefore that frees them to to, to do their to do their work. Um okay. So uh let me read a couple sentences transg- transgressing. <laughs> transitioning. That's the word I wanted. Those are different words. Uh, transitioning to the next point. Because, obviously, if that's the motivation we don't want, uh, You know, what motivation is there for, for Christian work? And he says, and he's just kind of summarizing the last couple of chapters, actually. This is the par- or sentence right before the second heading, The Power of True Passion. He says, We've said that the gospel replaces the story that animates our work, which we've talked about. It alters our conception of what work is. And it reorients the ethical compass, this was the last chapter, we use for our work. And then he says, In addition to all this, the gospel also gives us new power for work by supplying us with a new passion and deeper kind of rest. And that's kind of really what the rest of the chapter is all about. A new passion. Uh, and a deeper kind of rest. And the first thing he talks about is counterfeit passion. And there is a great quote from Dorothy Sayers, uh, if you didn't read it, uh, on right underneath this. This idea of counterfeit passion. Um, I'm going to read this paragraph in a minute, but Ke- Keller sort of sets it up this way. Because um, you hear a lot about passion. Right? Passion is a big deal in our culture. Passion leads you to excel in whatever you do. But there are different sources and kinds of passions, as Keller not sayers. Sometimes it generates frenetic activity more grounded in fear of failure than in the pursuit of success. That kind of passion can produce a lot of energy, but from a Christian point of view, it's a counterfeit. It is fueled by the work under the work, which we just talked about. And it is unsustainable, like the extreme brightness of a dying uh, light bulb. Okay, And so... This is going to get us into the Sayer quote, which really, inter- which really unpacks this idea of, of counterfeit passion. And she hones in on um, this. She's talking about, uh, you'll see from the quote, the seven deadly sins, right? And how they can all drive us in a sinful way, be driving factors behind our work. But she points out, I think it's interesting. There's one in particular. Uh, I-, I had never seen this word in English before, acedia. A C. Am I saying that right? Correct. A C E D I A. Is anyone ever? Okay. No. I do know the Greek word it comes from, though. So does that count? So, um, uh, but but it's sloth is the idea, and she's arguing that this one can be sort of the driving factor behind all of them. And when I read the quote, you'll know what she means. And I think it's quite interesting. Let me define first by what she means by uh, acedia, or we would say sloth. She says acedia. Uh, let me back up. Sayers addresses the seven deadly sins, including acedia, which is often translated sloth. But as Sayers explains it, this is a misnomer, because laziness, the way we normally define sloth, isn't the real nature of this condition. And then he says this, this is how she defines it. Acedia means a life driven by mere cost-benefit analysis of what's in it for me. And she says this, acedia is the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there's nothing for which it will die, right? The what's in it? What's in it for me? Um, and then uh, uh, here's the paragraph that I think is brilliant, um, and, and Keller does too, and he think it it's a he calls it like a brilliant exposition of idolatry, but it illustrates how these. Acedia and other other the other seven deadly sins drive counterfeit um, uh, passion. She says this: it is one of our favorite it is one of the favorite tricks of this sin. She's speaking of acedia to dissemble to dissemble itself under a cover of a whiffling activity of body. We think that uh, if we are busily rushing about. And doing things, we uh, doing things, we cannot be suffering from sloth. Gluttony offers a world of dancing, dining, sports, and dashing very fast from place to place to gape at beauty spots. Covetousness rakes us out of the bed at an early hour in order that we may, we may put pep and hustle into our business. Envy sets us to gossip and scandals, to writing cantankerous letters. To the paper and to the unearthing of secrets and scavenging of desk bins, wrath pr- provides the argument that the only fitting activity in a world so full of evildoers and evil demons is to curse loudly and incessantly, while lust provides the, that round of dreary promiscuity that passes for bodily vigor. But these are all disguises for the empty heart and the empty brain. And the empty soul of Asidia. And uh, in the world, it calls itself tolerance, but in hell, it is called despair. That's wonderful. And so, Keller thinks this is a, you know, and here's the point Keller summarizes it without something bigger than yourself to work for, all your energy, energy is going to be fueled by one of these seven deadly sins, is what he's saying. Right? Something's going to be driving all of our working. Right? And she's just illustrating how each one of those sins can, 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 drive, can drive that. Um, and so, uh, so if that's not the passion for Christians that should be behind our, behind our work, what does Keller say, or if he didn't read, what then should be the passion behind uh, our work? How does the Bible define, according to Keller saying, passion differently? And he sort of brings Christ's passion, Christ's passion into this. When we think about Christ's passion what do we mean when we say the passion of Christ? What are we referring to? I bet someone in here knows that answer. He sacrificed himself. Yes. It was a selfless act. Yes. Exactly. Wasn't anything Right. And that's what he, said. he says. Put it, but in the Bible, the very definition of passion, on your point, uh, think of Christ's passion, is to sacrifice your freedom for somebody else. Exactly. Um, and that's completely opposed to what Sayer was saying, because it's all about me, and that's what drives everything that I do. And he's saying, that's empty, that won't, that won't work. And so it's doing, sacrificing your freedom for someone else. And then he goes to Romans 12 to flesh this point out. Um, so if, if you can turn there, if you have a Bible, um, I'll read the verses if you don't have one. And so this is used to demonstrate the type of passion that God um, well he's really <coughs> desires of us. And uh, he focuses, uh, let me read, he goes really verses 1 and 11 are the the main verses here. He says, this is Paul, I urge you brothers and sisters, Romans 12, 1, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice um, to illustrate this idea of of passion. Now why is that a weird, most of us probably know that verse in here. Why is that kind of a weird exhortation? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. It's coming. Are sacrifices normally alive? No. Every Jew reading this would be like, you kill the thing. How can it be a living sacrifice? So it's supposed to shock you, right? That's that's supposed to be the, 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 the point. So how, how how do we? What does that? You know, he makes the point. If you're not up, I know that you probably your devotions this morning were probably the first seven chapters of Leviticus. But just in case they weren't, okay. I mean, I know over here they certainly were. Uh, up at four thirty, right? That's what. Yeah. If you're not up on that, he's, he's right that uh, Paul's alluding to the, the burnt offering. Other offerings like the sin offering and other ones, uh, clearly he's not referring to. But the burnt offering, he says, which had to be a choice animal from the flock, was offered as a way of showing your absolute commitment to God. As if to say, everything I have is yours, without any reservations. And he says, in other words, it was an expression of passion. And so that's the idea that Paul has uh, in, in view there, is that you're, you, we are supposed to be living examples, our lives are, of the sacrifice that said, as we go, everything I have is yours. It's not all about me. Right? Like, like Christ's passion, we, we do what we do. We sacrifice our freedom for, for the um, uh, benefit of others. Okay? And so he says this. In fact, the term living sacrifice is deliberately paradoxical sacrifices were dead. That's part of what it means to be a sacrifice. To say to God's people, I want you to be a, lame, a living slain thing is meant to be a jolt. It's a way of saying that you have to continually be in, rhythm of, in the rhythm of dying to your own interest and living for God. That's the passion that God asked for you. You're like, well that's great, what does that look like? And he goes to verse 11 to actually flesh out what that looks like. And so, just scan your eyes down to verse 11 of chapter 12. I'll read it here. He says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And he focuses on two words there, uh, or two aspects of that. The one is zeal. Uh, and he, as he points out, it means urgency, diligence. Uh, Greek word's pretty similar to our English word, so it's not that uh, different. But he says it's possible to be frenetic, to be urgent without a focus, without focus and discipline. It's possible to be plotting or diligent without urgency. And the point here is that God's charge means that you are to be both urgent and disciplined. So this is what it, one of the aspects of what it looks like to offer your body up as a, as a living sacrifice. Second is that aspect of keeping your spiritual fervor. Uh, and he's absolutely right that the Greek here is literally as your as to your spirit boiling. That's the idea of a boiling spirit. And so, Keller says, we are to bring our emotion, discipline, and urgency to the task of being living sacrifices in the lives we lead and the work we do. We are asked to live with passion. You could even say, even though it's not a command in the Greek, it's an implicit command. So, even instead of asked, we're sort of, Kind of weird thing. You're commanded to live with passion in the Bible, right? And so, um, it's interesting. Then he goes back one step further and goes, "Well, where does this true passion come from? We sort of conjure ourselves up to, you know, get this, you know, little spiritual pet talk every morning. If you have that verse, verse one, uh, just verse one, and I ask you the question, which I am right now, where this passion comes from? What does Paul say?" What's the basis or the root or the, the, the origin of this passion? Right? Because, it, you know, if you just try to conjure up this passion, we're going to get either burnt out or fall into some of the other sins we've been talking about. But if this is the fuel of the passion, it'll never run out. I'll read the verse again. That could help. I urge you, brothers and sisters, I'm going to give you a little hint when I read it too, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies, as really some, right, as living, as living sacrifices. In view of God's mercy, let me ask you again, where does true passion come from? God's mercy, yes, exactly. Yeah, and it, the, he says, Keller uh, uh, says, what is it about God's mercy that if you viewed it would allow you to become a living sacrifice. So what is it about God's mercy that if you sat and thought about it, that would motivate you to live your life as a, a living dead thing, as a living sacrifice, dying to yourself, and to use language earlier in the book, serving the work to serve others. What is it about God's mercy that would that would that would uh, allow? He says allow us, but how about propel us? Or even the stronger word than, than propel. There is a word I am thinking. It's there, but it's I, I can't grasp it because I am really tired. Of that that But what is it about God's mercy in particular? to flesh that out? Undeserving. Who said that? Yes. Right. Can you or, or you can? I don't want to put you on the spot, but or anyone like this. it's undeserving. In what specific way? Like when we, on this side of the cross, think of God's mercy, what are we, and that's absolutely right, because because mercy is not getting what we do deserve, right? So what does that look like for us? This is not a trick question. What are you thinking, what is he? I love Wally, you can hear this. Sometimes he'll ask that question, if there's something very specific in his head, and I'm like don't know what you want me to say. I always say the wrong thing. He's like, no, not that, but this. Wally, I love you, but sometimes he does that. So I, I'm really not, I'm not doing that right now. Uh, it's, so, not getting what we deserve, but really stopping to pause and reflect on that. How is it that we, how is God able to not give us what we deserve? Who did he give what we deserve to? Jesus. And what did he give him? That we deserve. Yeah. Wrath. And we could even put some adjectives on that, right? The unmitigated. That's not an adjective. Unmitigated is a full fury of God's wrath concentrated in Jesus as he, as he hangs there, suspended between heaven and earth. That each one of us deserves even now. I just deserved. And the only reason we're not is because God set him forth as a sacrifice. Um, I know for me, how I live is directly proportional to how much I'm actually keeping that at the forefront of my mind. I mean, imagine if we always did, how different our lives would be, and how differently we would treat everyone, how differently we would approach our work. right? So that's the basis for what Paul is saying. Reflect on that. right? Reflect on, in light of God's mercy, because of that, that's what we just said, that is what should propel us and can propel us to live uh, as living sacrifices as opposed to waking up and just living for ourselves every day, which is what our, our hearts uh, want to do. Um, before he gets to deep rest Oh good, perfect. First time I'm actually where I want to be. Nice. Um, it's really hard to do if you talk, I'm telling you. It's not easy, So learn still learning. That. Um, he says, but why was Jesus suffering? So we looked at where did the passion come from from Jesus and then he asked the question well, but why was he suffering? Uh, where was his passion and sacrifice coming from? And you just keep pushing it back even further and asking these questions. And he goes to John 17. Um, with the, it's a verse that if you're used to, if you're, if you're around Christian you know, circles, it might seem weird to you because we use the word sanctification all the time. right? When we use it, what do we typically mean by sanctification? It's Christianese, right? Um, what do we typically mean by sanctification? Right. Yes, growth. As opposed to what? Or not opposed to, but in distinction from what? Yeah, yes, I didn't ask it. I just did the Wally thing. Oh, I, I, mean, <laughs> I should edit that out. I totally did. You're absolutely right. I didn't ask the, you know, I mean, we, we talked about, like right, justification is God declares us right based on what Jesus did for us, and then after that we grow, right, as opposed to being stagnant. Uh, so in light of that, let me, John 17:19. 19, uh, Jesus says, For them speaking of the disciples, I sanctify myself. If we plug in that definition, it doesn't really work, right? Uh, Especially, we have all kinds of theological problems. If Jesus needs sanctification, um, we're in trouble. (laughs) He's perfect, right? Uh, What's the other definition of sanctification? Does anyone know? Yeah. And that's actually the, the old, that's, the only definition of it in the Old Testament it's the word for holy it's interesting in Hebrew you can holy something it's a verb kadosh I can holy you know if I kadosh something I set it apart for holy use and that's where it comes from and this is this is the this is the meaning of it Jesus Jesus has in the statement for them I sanctify myself <coughs> and this is interesting he says the original word sanctify uh, kadosh. Pagianzo in Greek, this is what he's talking about. Meant to set yourself apart like an Olympic runner. We know what it means to train for the Olympics. It means that ev- absolutely everything in life is subordinate to that goal. It means that every minute of the day, every activity is done in such a way as to contribute to that aim. This, uh, There is a great deal of pain every day, but it is endured without complaint. Only, the level, only that level of passion and commitment can earn the gold. And so then he's saying that's, he then applies that to Jesus and his passion that everything he did was aimed towards that one goal of dying on the cross to secure the salvation uh, for his people. And he's saying in that way, he's our model, right? So as we're thinking through living, uh, being a living sacrifice, it's the mercy of God that enables us to do that, but we further reflect on Jesus and the passion that drove him, his being fully dedicated and, and really. You could argue the word sanctify in the Old Testament really means devoted is probably the primary word or idea of it. So as we reflect on that, what he did for us, we also reflect on his, his devotedness to the Father. And then that is a model for us. The rest of the chapter is, is rest. And I'm glad he ends this way. Um, because rest, and again, if we, if we have another week, I need to find out. I believe we do. I would love to listen to Keller's sermon on Sabbath in here. It's fantastic. Um, and he points out there's a symbiotic relationship between work and rest. Um, and he says, this is uh, under, if you're following, the power of deep rest is uh, where I'm at. Um, a couple things. He says, and then I want, we'll talk about two passages. Resting or practicing Sabbath uh, is, is a, a way to help us get perspective on our work and to put it in its proper place. I think I told you earlier there was a, I mentioned it sometime, there was an um, article uh, actually it's from that, that Keller video. He talks about an article in the New York Times about a person who's a secular Jew talking about the need to revive Sabbath. Right? And, <coughs> and that's, a, that's significant too because you think about it, according to scripture, is Sabbath only for Christians. And how do we know that? Like, are unbelievers under the obligation to keep the Sabbath according to the Bible? I think initially most people would say no. But is that right? Any Bible students help me out here? Well, it's in the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are for everybody, not just Christians. Isn't that interesting? It's the Fourth Commandment. And those are rooted and grounded in creation, just as much as not murdering. And you think you go back to that to... Genesis chapter 1, God rested, right, after he worked. And that's a pattern for all creation. Um, I think we typically, I think it's hard because Sabbath also associated with Israel's ceremonial law and their calendars and stuff. But it, it's part of the moral law, keeping Sabbath. Um, but and one of the passages, too, is always boggled my mind uh, Exodus 31 17 or 27, I think it's 17, where it says that God almost like I had a Bible right in front of me. <laughs> Maybe I should just read it. Um, it says, let me read it to you. He says, and this is Exodus 31, reflecting back on creation. God said between me and between, you not have to turn there. Um, uh, and <coughs> he said, God uh, made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, listen to this language. He rested and was refreshed. Why is that weird? God rested because rest Shabbat just means to cease or stop. So you're like, okay, that's not that weird. God just he shabbat he just stopped or ceased. But how about this? He was refreshed. Why is it weird? At least it is for me to think of God being refreshed. What does that typically imply? He needed to be refreshed, like. Yeah, like he got tired. And then you're like, Psalm 121 says, oh, Israel, your keeper doesn't sleep or slumber. You're like, is that a contradiction? Uh, uh, it's interesting to see what commentaries do on this. I'm like, oh, this is weird. But I think it's like, it, 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 it could also literally be translated, he took a breath. It's the word for nefesh we get soul from. He, he, he took a breath. It could, have, it could be. It's like when you're done, you're like, ah, oh, i got to take a breather. That's the idea. That's the image. And that's the idea that's supposed to, to be stuck in our head is because I think this is that one of the first places in scripture the the nerdy term is anthropomorphism. Has anyone heard what is an anthropomorphism? I'm sure most people probably know what that is. What's an anthropomorphism? I mean, come on, didn't you do that this morning? In your four thirty devotions when you were yeah. What's an anthropomorphism? Giving like human like characteristics or something that's yeah and you know you guys know this the Bible speaks of God with hands and feet and all this sort of stuff. He doesn't have hands, feet, a mouth, right? So this is probably one of the earliest ones in Scripture, is that the idea is God God resting like like we rest from our work. And I think it's one of those many places where we see God condescending and modeling for us what we need, right, in his kindness. That's what he's doing. Uh, He obviously doesn't um, need to rest, but he's modeling that, that for us. He we literally need to rest. Like it is built into the structure of creation, right? It doesn't. Um, I remember for me, my my uh, an advice. I, I was I was burnout, like when I was doing the PhD, and I was like going to quit. And my advisor said, "Like, are you keeping Sabbath?" And I wasn't. And once I, because I thought if I just I'll have a whole another day to work and I'll be productive. And, and you probably had this. Well, guess what? I'm less productive. Burnout. And I ended up being more productive, way more productive, when I would actually just completely stop, do nothing, and then not worry about, because at first I stopped, and then I think, you might have to do the next day, because I've got to catch up, because I didn't have Sunday to work. But it's like, it, you know, then after it worked, I'm like, it's almost like God knew I needed this rest. It's almost like he made one day for human beings that would refresh us, and, oh wait, that's what the, that's what the Bible says. Like why wasn't I just obeying this from the, you know from, from the get go? So we you know rest is 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 is, is absolutely important. Uh, and and in that video we'll see Keller, you know he it isn't just stopping. It's it's also doing things that give you life, right? That's and that we can refresh you. So it's not just an there's a positive and a negative or an active and a passive sort of uh, mode to it or uh, dimension of it. Uh, so there's two passages he looks at that we can really quickly. Um, I'll just summarize them: Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And I don't know if you've ever studied this. If you know the Ten Commandments are repeated, or given two times in the books of Moses. The first time, obviously, is when they get delivered out of Exodus, or out of Egypt, uh, through the Exodus, and, and uh, God delivers them and gives them Ten Commandments. <coughs> and never remember he doesn't. He doesn't. Say, so keep these Ten Commandments, and then I'll deliver you. He delivers them, and then says, out of response. He gives him Ten Commandments. And we get to the Sabbath command. He says this. Uh, I'm just not going to read the whole thing. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Work six days. Um, don't have any of your animals or slaves or uh, uh, servants uh, work. And here's why. For in six days, the Lord God made everything, the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all this is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore he blessed it and called it holy. So what's the grounds upon which the command to keep the Sabbath rests on in this passage? What's the reason he gives for that? You should rest because God rested a creation. Right? So everything we just talked about. But I don't know if you notice this. When these ten commands are repeated in Deuteronomy 5, the grounds are different. So he says, let me just read to you... uh, so keep the Sabbath. Dot dot dot. Remember that you were sl- for. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought you out of there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, God commands you to observe the Sabbath. Which one is it? Am I supposed to keep the Sabbath because God rested creation, or am I supposed to keep the Sabbath because God redeemed me out of slavery? Yes, <laughs> right. So both creation and redemption are, are, the, are, are the motivation for keeping Sabbath in Scripture. Right? And for them it was they were redeemed out of Egyptian bondage, right? and, and, and that God freed them from their work so they were to, to, to not work. Right? Since the Exodus was a signpost just pointing to the greater redemption in Christ, it's the same thing. Our keeping Sabbath also is grounded in the work of Christ. Right? Um, if you have some time, you can read Hebrews chapter 4 that talks about, expounds upon this a little bit. Keller doesn't talk about that, but it's a, it's a passage that talks about, about this. And so, so those are the grounds, um, uh, both creation and redemption, for us to keep our Sabbath, uh, or to keep the Sabbath. And then he concludes the chapter by talking about sort of nice bookends for the chapter. He began by talking about the work under the work, and now the rest under the rest. The rest, under the rest. So under the rest of the Sabbath is the rest that comes, that is portrayed in this passage that is very well known. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And of course the point there. Is that we can rest from our work because of the finished work of Christ. Right? And so that's the ultimate work. On, and that's, you know, really what should motivate us and what we should be reflecting on every Sabbath day, right? Is, is what Christ did for us uh, and how that um, informs everything. And so he says, in Jesus we find the rest, under the rest, the rem of the, of the soul. I love that. The rem of the soul. Without it all, the work will be unsatisfying. You won't be able to relax even when you're supposed to be resting. You won't even be able to walk away from your nets even for an evening. You won't be able to enjoy the satisfaction that God intended when he called us to the work he has prepared for us, right? So reflecting on the fact that Jesus has already done everything that's necessary for my status before God, is, is, that's the ultimate freedom. And I think that's, that's a good place to, to end the book. Alright, so um, I'm going to plan, I think there is at least another week, I'm pretty sure, uh, for Sunday School. So I want to plan on listening to the Keller Sermon on rest, uh, and I'll get a video or something uh, for that. So let me pray, and we'll conclude. Uh, Thank you, God, uh, again, for letting us think about work and rest. Uh, I pray that you would help all of us to really reflect on uh, the rest that Christ has, has given those who have trusted in him, that... Uh, he worked and labored and toiled, uh, living a perfect life, dying a death on the cross, uh, and then being raised on the third day from the dead. And if we just trust in him, uh, we don't have to try to gain favor with you or anyone else because we're wrestling with what you did for us, and that frees us to serve you and serve others uh, in love without fear. Uh, so please just bless everyone to go out here and try to um, apply what we've learned in this book. Uh, And I pray these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.